Good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Anybody wonder what I'm preaching about this morning? As you look at the title? Any guesses? Yeah. I, I hope it's not a Titanic message, though. That's a, that's a Billy Redekop one. Give Billy some credit there. An estimated 100,000 people gathered at the dock in Belfast, Ireland on March 31, 1911 to watch the launch of the RMS, the Royal Mail Ship Titanic. Considered to be an unsinkable ship, people as they thought of the Titanic, one man commented that God himself could not sink this ship. During this time, in the early 1900s, this ship was the largest and most luxurious cruise liner of its day, measuring more than 882 feet long from prow to stern, the length of four city blocks, and 175 feet high and weighing more than 46,000 tons. It boasted state-of-the-art technology including a sophisticated electronic control panel, four elevators, and an advanced wireless communication system that could transmit Morse code. Yet on the night of April 14, 1912, just four days after leaving Southampton, I always remember this date because it's my birthday. And for some reason, this ship sunk on my birthday. I mean, I wasn't born yet. But, it, but it's interesting, eh? this, this ship, April 14th. Four days after leaving Southampton, England, on its maiden voyage to, to New York, the Titanic struck an iceberg off the coast of Newfoundland and sank. Now, more than a century after the Titanic went down, experts are still debating the possible causes of this historic disaster that took the lives of more than 1,500 passengers and crew. Most of them agree that only a combination of circumstances can fully explain what doomed this supposedly unsinkable ship. It's an interesting thought. You know, history, um, in, in, and even in our day today, we're, we're fascinated by this story. For some reason, the sinking of this ship captures the minds and hearts of people across the world. It's an interesting, an interesting realization. I want us to consider some things, though. Do a little bit of a history lesson, but also maybe a little bit of a science lesson as we, as we think about the hows and the whys. Like, here's this, this massive ship um, built to um, make everyone just, just look at this ship, take notice of it, and enjoy what man could accomplish. And so after this ship sunk, there was an inquiry held. And so people started to ask this question, what went wrong? What happened? This, this unsinkable ship is no, or, you know, this, it's sunk. It's, what, what could have gone wrong? And that's, uh, that's an interesting thought. I want us to consider that. But let's look a little bit up at this ship. At the inquiry that was held in regard to, to the sinking of this ship, it was discovered that this ship was traveling very fast. And the, one of the conclusions that came was that 
it was just going too fast. It was going at 22 knots. And previously, they had already been warned that there was an iceberg-heavy um, water here in the North Atlantic as they were traveling. Many believed and kind of came to the conclusion that the captain of the, uh, of, of the ship, Captain Smith, was trying to better the crossing time of a, another ship, a, a sister ship to this um, White Star Lines named the, the Olympic. And so with all the warnings that were given, this captain had made a decision, it seems like, that regardless of the danger around, they were going to outpace, they were going to beat a record. And so this ship was plowing through um, an ice-covered ocean at 22 knots, which was way too fast. So it was traveling too fast. The, the second one here, um, the wireless radio operator that was receiving these messages dismissed a key iceberg warning. Less than an hour before the Titanic hit the iceberg, the nearby ship, the Californian, had radioed to say that it had been stopped by a field of ice. There was so much ice on the ocean that this ship had been stopped by a massive field of ice. Somehow this wireless radio operator missed that message. Um, and we, f we find out here that the warning didn't begin with the prefix MSG, which meant that it would have had to go straight to the captain's office. But because it didn't begin with that MSG, it was just kind of dismissed. The radio operator, Jack Phillips, considered it to be non-urgent and didn't pass it along. So it was going too fast, and they missed a really important warning. The third one here, the Titanic's builders attempted to cut some costs. Here was this magnificent ship. On the outside, it looked amazing. The crowds marveled at it. Like 100,000 people got together to view this ship depart from the coast. Well, in, in 1985, um, some American French explorers discovered the, the wreck of the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean. As they, as they looked at this wreck and discovered what had happened to this ship, they, they, they were the first ones to figure out that the ship actually broke apart while it was still on the surface of the ocean. And as they, as they explored it further, they actually discovered that there was a failure with the way the ship was built. It was held together the metal by three million rivets. And as they pulled these rivets apart and examined them, they found that they contained a high concentration of slag, which is a smelting residue that can make metal split apart. And many of them now believe that, that this ship, in order to cut costs, was put together with weakened material. Interesting thought, right? There's a fourth problem why this ship went down. The lookouts, if you, you see this picture there, you see that little white thing up top, that's known, known as the crow's nest. 
for some reason, the lookout had no binoculars. Isn't that interesting? The, the, the two men that were sitting up top didn't have binoculars. Where Their view in front of them was quite limited. In fact, um, at the inquiry, they found out that the second officer, whose name was David Blair, who held the key to the Titanic store of binoculars in his pocket, was transferred off the ship. And before it left for its maiden voyage from Southampton, this man who was transferred off the ship, he forgot to hand over the key to the officer who had replaced him. At a later inquiry into the sinking, a lookout on the Titanic said binoculars might have helped them spot and dodge the iceberg in time. Anyways, this key was found later on and auctioned off in 2007 and fetched over 90,000 pounds of English money. Interesting though, eh? No binoculars for the guy that was supposed to be warning the occupants of the ship and the captain about potential dangers ahead. There weren't enough lifeboats. No matter what caused this massive ship to sink, um, most believe that there would have been very little loss of life had the ship carried sufficient lifeboats for its passengers and crew. What ended up happening was that this, this White Star ship, this Titanic, it left Southampton with only 20 lifeboats, which was able, at a legal minimum, to cover the capacity of 1,178 people, which was not nearly enough. It was discovered later on, too, that a man by the name of Morris Clark, who inspected the Titanic in Southampton, recommended it carry 50% more lifeboats, but his handwritten notes at the time later revealed that he felt his job was threatened if he did not give the famous ship the go-ahead to sail. So even though the, the inspector comes on board and, and with all his training and insight, he realizes there's a problem here. There's not enough lifeboats for this unsinkable ship. He gives the approval and signs off on the inspection. Perhaps because he feared even for his job, like it says here. We, we know that when this ship struck the iceberg, that 20 lifeboats departed from the ship, and on those 20 lifeboats, there was about 400 empty seats still, which left more than 1,500 people still on board the ship when it went down. One other interesting thought. I don't know if I had ever realized this till I studied this. On board the ship, maybe you're asking, so what did these 1,500 passengers do that didn't make it to the lifeboats, that were stuck on board this ship as it began to take on water in large amounts and started to tilt and, and, and eventually sink. Passengers from that, that event testified some really strange things. I'll just share some of the, some of the testimonies from that. One, one survivor says this. He says, We stood there quietly looking at the work of the crew, as they manned the lifeboats, and no one ventured to interfere with them. He says, the crowd of men and women stood quietly on the deck, or they paced slowly up and down, waiting for orders from the officers 
There was, there was a quietness, he said. And we've later on discovered there was a, a state of disbelief among the passengers, even as the ship was taking on water. Another passenger by the name of Eloy Smith testified in a U.S. Senate hearing, and she said this, there was no commotion, no panic, and no one seemed to be particularly frightened. You know, here was the ship who had struck an iceberg, was taking on massive amounts of water, and the passengers on board were not even frightened. A large part of them, anyways. And she says this, she says, I had not the least suspicion of the scarcity of lifeboats, or I never should have left my husband. She says, I watched the boats on the starboard side as they were successfully filled and lowered away, and at no time during this period was there any panic or evidence of fear or unusual alarm. I saw no woman nor children weep, nor was there any evidences of hysteria. Many others sim seem simply to have been in denial. Even after being told that the ship was sinking, stewardess Violet Jessup recalled this, my mind, usually adjustable to sudden and unforeseen happenings, could not accept the fact that this super perfect creation was to do so futile a thing as sink. First class passenger Elizabeth Schutz remembers that she and her fellow lifeboat occupants wanted to, to, to stay close to the Titanic. They didn't even want to leave. She said, surely such a vessel could not sink. I thought the danger must be exaggerated and we could all be taken aboard again. Passenger Beasley, who published a book just weeks after the disaster, made the point that while the world now knew how the Titanic story ended, the disaster's actual participants could not. They relied on what little information they had, and many erred on the side of optimism. And he says this, even after we had embarked in the lifeboats, he wrote, it would not have surprised us to hear that all the passengers would be saved. There was this incredible spirit of, of disbelief of this impending doom and disaster that was about to happen to them. It's almost like as the ship tilted and went down and, and, and as, as these people dealt with the icy waters of the North Atlantic, even in their dying state, they seemed to disbelieve the fact that they were about to expire. It's a, it's a weird story. It's a crazy story. Today, all of us are again on a journey. Perhaps similar to what the passengers of the Titanic experienced those years ago. Some might say that we are on the ship in the icebergs right ahead dead ahead. Some might say that in our journey today, we've already hit the iceberg. As you observe this particular time that we find ourselves at in history, I wonder what your thoughts are. I wonder, wonder as you think about the journey that we are on in life, where you find us. And I've, I've contemplated that a lot. And kind of like these passengers on the Titanic, you know, at the last moment, 
Maybe at the last hour, maybe the last five minutes before many of them froze to death in this ocean, in this cold water. Maybe, maybe the last few moments, the thoughts would have been, how did we get here? How, how is this unsinkable ship gone under? What, what happened? Many years later, as we've analyzed and diagnosed these things, we've, we've understood, yeah, they went too fast. There was problems with the way it was built. There was not enough lifeboats. I mean, the guy didn't even have binoculars. The, this wireless operator, why did he not heed this message? You know, there's, there's so many things that we look back to now. And we have the, the blessing of hindsight. But when we think about the journey that we're on right now, I'd, I'd like you to think just for a moment that maybe we're on something similar to that right now. And we don't, we have the blessing of, of history and how things have gone in our world previously, but maybe we're not, we're not really realizing where we are at currently today. And that's what I'd like us to consider. Past cultures have, have um, risen to the forefront. You know, as, as we look at, at cultures such as um, the, the Mayans, uh, the Aztecs, the Incas, uh, world powers that dominated um, the world at times, whether it was the, the Babylonian Empire, the, the Roman Empire, the Grecian Empire. Um, as, as we consider these things, um, historians tell us that every single one of these superpowers crumbled from within. There was a disease that came inside. Maybe a hunger for power. Maybe an appetite for things that even their moral consciences knew were wrong. And almost exclusively, entirely, every single superpower on the face of the earth has crumbled from within. They've destroyed themselves, either by greed, by lust, um, by a desire for power, by a desire for uh, self, to, to lift up self. And I want us to consider this, this scripture passage as we, as we think about this thought. My, my perspective is, as we're on this journey, is that we've already hit the iceberg. I, I think we've already hit it. And I want us to think about it from that perspective. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says this. Paul is talking to Timothy. And he says to Timothy as his, his young son, his, his, his prodigy, his disciple, he says, he says this, Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart in a good conscience in a sincere faith. And he says certain persons, by swerving from these, by, by turning away from this kind of love, he says, these people have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And in verse 18, he, he goes back to this charge. He says, Timothy, I'm giving you this charge to love. He says, I entrust it to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, 
that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, by, by rejecting this kind of a love, this charge. Remember, he, he gave Timothy this charge. And Paul says, there's people that have swerved away from this. By rejecting this, he says, they have made shipwreck of their faith. They've hit the iceberg. The, the word charge in this scripture passage means to give strict orders from a superior officer. So Paul was the superior officer in this case. As he was getting inspiration from the Holy Spirit, he says to Timothy, Hey, I'm your superior officer. God has given me a message. I'm giving you a charge. Listen to the charge I'm giving you because there's people coming and some people have already. They've swerved away. They've veered away. Take, take note of that, Timothy. Take, don't veer away from that. Here's the charge. And he says, I'm going to give you what you ought to do. And it starts with the word love. The word love in our world today, we know it's been very hijacked. Um, when, when you speak about love in our, in our, in our culture, our, our society, um, they, they tell you that love is affirmation. Love is support. Love is inclusivity. Love is pornographic or erotic or sexual. These are, these are definitions that we hear in our world today. And so, so we have myriads of people that will say to you and confront you and condemn you and, and call you every name if you come against their definition of love. Because what they are trying to tell you is that love says you ought to support my decisions. You ought to come alongside. And in a sense, if the iceberg has been hit, they would say, Oh, don't tell me what I ought to do. Don't tell me to get on the lifeboat. Just hold my hand and hug me. And let's go down together. That's what our society is telling us what love is. Affirm me. Don't, don't try to change my mind or my direction or my way of thinking. Support me. Let's, let's just love each other. Let's not talk about destruction. Let's not talk about what's coming. Let's not talk about the fact that in a few hours we're going to be gone. This, this is not what Paul was saying to Timothy. He says, I've given you a charge. Love. And then he defines it. He defines what love is. He says, this is the charge I've given you. Love that issues from a pure heart. Look at that. That verse up there. Love, this is the kind of love. Not the kind that the world says. Love that issues from a pure heart. Well, what does that even mean? It means without pretense. Without fakery. Without an agenda. Without manipulation. Love that issues from a pure heart. From a heart that cares deeply. That doesn't just care 
about the past or the present, but that cares about the future. Hey, where are we going? We've hit an iceberg. You, you ought to get on the lifeboat. Sin in our hearts hinders our ability to love. And what I'm seeing today, and what you are, many of you are seeing today, is you're seeing people who profess to know Jesus. But they're so clouded by sin in their own heart and in their own life, they can't practice this kind of love. Paul says, I've, I've given you a charge, and that's love that issues from a pure heart. So what has to happen in this heart? This heart, first of all, it needs to be regenerated. It needs to be born again by the Spirit of God so that it can be cleansed and changed. When a heart is full of pride and, and anger and unforgiveness and, and untruthfulness and sexual immorality, these things have to be removed and taken out so that the love of God can come in. When we hear and study the Word of God and, and literally take the Word of God to our hearts, we can then start to understand the need to change. And when the Spirit of God convicts us as we study His Word, we then open ourselves up to Him and, and our heart becomes cleansed and free. When our heart becomes cleansed and free, we can now love other people the way they were meant to be loved. And so this is part of Paul's charge to Timothy. The second thing he says there, he says, love that issues from a good conscience. Love that issues from a pure heart. And then he says, here's another one, Timothy. Love that issues from a good conscience. It's an interesting thought. Our, our conscience is the faculty that resides in humanity that either accuses or approves our works, even according to verse 5 there. It is the, the moral faculty of man or woman. In Romans chapter 2, we read that one day God will judge the hearts of men by their conscience. In 1 Timothy 4.2, we read that our consciences can be hardened by living in unrepentant sin. And eventually, our consciences can even stop working. When we deal with a hardened and guilty conscience, it keeps us from the presence of God and from worshiping Him. The other thing it does, it keeps us from sincerely loving our neighbor. Many people today have a hardened conscience. Their, their conscience, because they have believed a lie, because they have allowed the whispers um, of our culture and our world to get to them and justify sin and things that we know are against, contrary to the Word of God. Because of these things, the, the minds, the consciences of people have become defiled and seared. When our consciences become defiled and seared, it prevents us from demonstrating this kind of love to our fellow man. And Paul says to Timothy, he says, this is a charge that I've given you. People, there's people that have swerved away from this. Why? Because their consciences have become defiled. They can't love humanity. They can't guide people to the lifeboat because they're so mired in their own sin and so defiled by their conscience. They, they become effectively useless in the kingdom of God. 
And Paul talks about the faith becoming shipwrecked. But he mentions a third area here. He says, says to Timothy, not only ought you to have love that comes from a pure heart and from a good conscience, you also have to have love that issues from a sincere faith. A sincere faith. This is an interesting thought. I want to I share with you a little bit of the original wording here. The word sincere comes from the Latin phrase sincera. Here's an interesting thought. This word actually comes from a word that means without wax. A sincere faith, a sincere person, is one without wax. I want us to look at this a little bit. In ancient times, potters would go to the market to sell their pots. Okay? They would have signs above their pots saying, Sincera, which actually meant without wax. Maybe you're asking, what does that mean? When making pots, sometimes the pot would crack. If you work with pottery, you, you, you know these kinds of things. So sometimes these pots would crack, and a dishonest salesman would put wax on the cracks and paint over them. The only way one could see the cracks was to lift up the pot to the sun, and you could see the cracks. So, these salesmen would have a sign above their pot saying, Sincera, these aren't fake. These are real. And, and we didn't just somehow fix them. That when you take them home, you'll discover that they're no good. Sincera. I want you to think about that. These salesmen wanted to make sure they weren't selling you cracked pots. That they were slimy salesmen. And Paul says to Timothy, I've given you a charge to love with a sincere faith. Don't be a cracked pot. In our world today, I don't know about you, there, there are so many people that claim to have faith, that claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet are living for the devil when no one's looking. They're essentially they're a cracked pot. They look beautiful on the outside. Jesus talks to the Pharisees like this. He says, hey, You guys look beautiful on the inside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And so, Paul says to Timothy, when you love people, love them sincerely, be the real deal to them. So, how, what does this look like? This looks like, even in our marriages, you know, sometimes, sometimes you look at someone and, and they say, oh, I'm a sincere follower of Jesus, I love Jesus. Jesus is everything to me. And when no one's looking, maybe... Maybe a wife is treating her husband like trash. But that's okay, nobody's looking. Maybe in marriages, men are presenting this image before everyone else. 
Yes, we are serving Jesus. We love the Lord. And inside the home, there's abuse and all kinds of horrible things that should never be named among us as saints. You know, and, and so sometimes when we pull back the curtain, we see a bunch of cracked pots. These beautiful pots that have cracks all over them, but because we don't want people to see the real deal, they're filled in with wax and painted nicely over. And, and, and Paul says to Timothy, don't be like that. The world is full of people like that. You know, it, it reminds me of this Titanic, this gorgeous ship that everybody came to see, only to discover years later that because the owner wanted to save costs, he used metal that he shouldn't have used. These rivets that held this ship together were like a cracked pot. And Paul says here, I've given you a charge. In the world that you're living in today, don't be like that. You know, don't be the kind of individual that comes alongside and affirms a sinful lifestyle. That's just okay with it. Oh, we ought, we ought to love each other. This, this counterfeit faith that we're seeing being preached from pulpits across our world today that, that, that talks about Jesus loves you. And in and, and essence, many of these false preachers, they, they've swerved away. Like, like Paul says, they, they've swerved away. They're, they're heading for shipwreck. And, and all they're speaking about is, yes, just forget about sin. What is sin? Jesus loves you. In essence, they're the same as somebody sitting on the Titanic saying, well, isn't this the safest place, really? Oh, don't listen to those people who say it's going down. This is, this is the safest place. I mean, why would you want to get out on the lifeboat? That's, think about the dangers, uh, the, 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 the rocky seas. And wouldn't you rather be in this, this stable ship, this shining vessel? Don't listen to those people. We love each other. And we're living in a world that is, is symbolically wrapping their arms around each other, holding hands together while the ship goes down. And Paul says to Timothy, no, you have a different charge. You love out of a pure heart. You love out of a good conscience, and you love out of a sincere faith. A sincere faith means I'm willing to tell you about the danger, even if it's going to cost me. I'm willing to tell you about the lifeboat, even if it's going to cost, even if I might get persecuted, even if you may revile me and call me. I, I care enough about your life that I'm willing to warn you. Paul says here that these persons have swerved away. They, they desire to be teachers. They, they are looking for preeminence and position. And they're smiling people right into an eternity in hell. Desiring to be teachers. 
he says, without understanding what they are saying. Or the things that they are so confidently asserting. There's confidence in their sermons. Confidence in their messages. Confidence in their voice. Great smiles and great promises of everything that Christ will give you and do for you. And Paul says here, that's, that's counterfeit. That's a cracked pot. These people have swerved away. I haven't given you that charge, Timothy. The charge I've given you is to love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith, not like you see around you. You know, one of the, the issues, Lord willing, I'd like to cover some of these um, in the next while, but as we just wrap up today, um, the, the problem that I see so often is that, that, that as a church, we've abandoned the Bible. And I'm not saying here at Lighthouse, but I'm saying that the, the church across the world, especially in the Western Hemisphere, we've, we've abandoned the literal interpretation of the Bible. People say, well, it's just a good idea. It's just a suggestion. It's just an ancient book. The, the issue is that in this book, we discover that we're made in the image of God. In this book, we discover that mankind rebelled. And the perfect environment that God had placed them in, man chose differently. Man went their own way. The scripture says we've all turned our own way, each to our own way. The, the issue is that that we've gone this way and abandoned this book, this manual for our life, which tells us that, yes, we erred, yes, we went away from God, but that doesn't mean the end of things. There's hope. There's an opportunity to get on the lifeboat. If only people had consulted the Titanic before it left or had only consulted the manual for the Titanic before it left Southampton. If only they had consulted it. Maybe they would have come to this conclusion, I'm about to get on a boat. I'm about to get on this big boat that doesn't have enough little boats. If something goes wrong. So I believe we're living in a time where the iceberg has, has hit. Everyone could have been saved by the lifeboat if things were done properly. That lifeboat is Jesus. I want us to just consider this abandonment of Scripture. Often been fascinated by, by the, the U.S., the founding fathers of the U.S. Who, who started this nation and declared it to be a godly, righteous nation founded upon the Word of God. I want to just share with you what some of these men said about the Bible um, as, it, as it related to the founding of their, of their nation. John Adams says this. He says, The Bible contains the most profound philosophy, the most perfect morality, and the most refined policy that ever was conceived upon the earth. John Quincy Adams says this, the Bible is of all books in the world, 
that which contributes most to make men good, wise, and happy. Elias Boudinot said this, Were you to ask me to recommend the most valuable book in the world, I should fix on the Bible as the most instructive, both to the wise and ignorant. Thomas Jefferson said this, The doctrines of Jesus are simple, intent all to the happiness of man. Had the doctrines of Jesus been preached always as pure as they came from his lips, the whole civilized world would now have been Christian. Benjamin Rush said this, The Bible contains more truths than any other book in the world. You look, at, you look at the U.S., which was meant to be a beacon, I believe, to the world. Uh, you see the fingerprints of God all over that nation in its origin and its founding. And, and to me, it's a, an image of the Christian church. If the Christian church would have maintained and followed the literal translation of the Bible and not swerved away from it, I believe we could have avoided the iceberg. Here's an interesting thought, right? Everything, Scripture says that God gave us everything we needed for life and godliness. Every single thing. So God gave us the wireless operators. God gave us the lookouts and the crow's nest with the binoculars to warn indirect of oncoming impending danger. My, my personal belief, and, and many biblical scholars will, will testify to this as well, that God gave the keys to the church. Jesus himself, when he's in front of Peter, he says, I give you the keys as a pillar in the church. God, God gave direction to the church to steer society and culture in the world. And the fact that we've hit the iceberg, I believe there's a, the, the, the blame needs to be pointed to those who, were, to, who Christ had given in charge of guiding the ship. I believe much blame lies upon the church. There's a time coming, Amos talked about this. In Amos chapter 8, verse 11, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. They shall wander, he says, from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, as, as gospel-believing, preaching churches that cling to the word of God as their guide, that, that it's shrinking less and less. We're, we're getting to a point where this scripture is being lived out. Where people will be running around trying to find someone, a place somewhere where the gospel is being preached, where the Bible is honored, where people are following the word of God. And Amos says they're going to run to and fro and there's going to be a famine. Not of, not of food or water, but of the word of God. And I think to a great degree, that's where we are at today. People have abandoned this manual. And it's no wonder that they refuse to get in the lifeboat and trust in this sinking ship. 
We see it across our land, a growing number of church leaders abandoning sound biblical teachings. Rather than telling lost sinners about their need for salvation, they're proclaiming messages of prosperity, of self-esteem, even of political activism. Paul warned us about this, and he, he says this to Timothy, this guy who he's giving this charge to. He says, Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. The time is coming. They're, they're going to be distracted by all kinds of other things. They won't endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, he says, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Why do you think Paul said endure suffering? Because Paul recognized that those who will adhere to the Word of God will be persecuted, will suffer. They'll be called bigots. Oh, you exclusive person. Like, what are you thinking? Jesus is the only way. Ah, you narrow-minded person. And, and people will mock you and make fun of you. Society becomes what the church allows or even embraces. We've seen this throughout history. We've seen this in the in the great cultures that have, have come to an end. In our world today, we see increasingly a culture of death. This message that the world says is love, it's not working. If it was working, why are people becoming more suicidal? Why is abortion promoted to such an extent? Why are our elderly euthanized and looked at as invaluable in our culture? We, we are in the midst of destroying ourselves from within, like the cultures of the past. Matthew 5.13, Jesus said this, and he's speaking to the church. And he says, you, you, brothers and sisters, you are the salt of the earth. You are in charge. You're steering the ship. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If the people of God can no longer point a lost world to where safety lies, to where a joyous future lies. We become useless. Jesus says further here, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden when you're driving down the road in the dark and you see a city coming up there's no way it can be hidden Jesus says that's you you're the city on a hill he says nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket 
Is that what characterizes your life? Do, the, do your co-workers, do the people around you know what you even stand for? Or has the salt lost its saltiness? Is your, is your lamp covered under a basket? And Jesus says this, people don't do that. They put this lamp under a stand or on a stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What is he saying here? He's saying, you brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are we're the little beacons, we're the lights that God has placed in our culture, in our world to give direction. We're the ones supposed to be bringing people to the lifeboat and saying, yes, we've hit the iceberg. But hope isn't lost. Hope isn't lost. There's, there's one who can save you. Sometimes I wonder if we're a little bit like that inspector who looked at this lifeboat, or this ship, I mean. He looked at this, this gigantic ship, and he started to realize this is a disaster waiting to happen, but boy, my job is on the line. If I don't sign off on this, it's going to be bad for me. And he signs off on an inspection he should have never signed off on. Sometimes I wonder, you know, we're hiding this light in our hearts. This message of the gospel is burning inside of us. And we have all the answers. And, and we're able to walk by somebody who we know is sinking, who is being destroyed. How? How do we do that? How callous do we have to get to walk by someone who we know is perishing. And I, I sometimes think we have this mindset. Yeah, I'm going to get mocked and ridiculed. Well, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Be willing to suffer ridicule if need be. Let me just close with a story. All along our coastline here in the U.S. and Canada, along the Great Lakes region here, we have lighthouses that stand on the shore of our major harbors. Wherever you travel, we have a lighthouse in our community here. We know that it's uh, having some problems right now. Um, when we think about a lighthouse... Along with the lighthouses, in most of our harbors, there were what was called lower lights to guide the ships into the harbor. Most of these harbors, many of them have large rocks near the shore. The, the lower lights were placed there to help the pilots to steer the ships clear at night. We, we read about these lower lights that they were placed among the shore at even intervals. If a ship was coming into the harbor by night, the pilot would see the evenly spaced lower lights. If there was a gap in the reflection of the lights, that meant there was a large rock between the ship in the entrance to the harbor. 
the, the pilot would avoid sailing into these dark areas, knowing that the rocks blocked the lights from showing across the waves. Songwriter Philip Bliss was traveling with the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. And while preaching, D.L. Moody shares this true story. He says, one dark stormy night on Lake Erie, the winds were howling and the rain was re relentless. The waves rolled like mountains and not a star in the sky could be seen. A ship was rolling with the huge waves and was trying to make its way into Cleveland Harbor. At last, the captain saw the lighthouse for Cleveland Harbor, but he could not see the lower lights. The captain said to the pilot, is that Cleveland Harbor? And the pilot responded, yes, sir, it is Cleveland Harbor. Where are the lower lights, the captain asked. They must have gone out, sir, said the pilot. Can you make it into the harbor without the lower lights, asked the captain. We must, sir, or we will perish in this storm, was the pilot's reply. With a strong hand and with a brave heart, the pilot turned the ship's wheel toward the Cleveland Harbor. But the ship missed the channel and crashed on the rocks. The boat sank and over 200 people lost their lives. Mr. Moody then made an application from the store and he said, Brethren, the master will take care of the great lighthouse of salvation, but it is our job to keep the lower lights burning to guide men safely to him. This uh, is an amazing story. It's always struck me as I've read this story. I've read it before. Out of this story, Philip Bliss wrote this song, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning, and he says, Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore, but to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman you may rescue, you may save. Dark, the night of sin has settled. Loud, the angry billows roar. Eager eyes are watching, longing for the lights along the shore. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother. Some poor seaman, tempest-tossed, trying now to make the harbor in the darkness may be lost. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman you may rescue, you may save. You know, God has given us the mandate in the culture like ours to be the lower lights. May we be that in order to direct people to the lifeboat. If the iceberg has been hit, doesn't mean we're without hope. Jesus is the master of the seas. All we need to do is bring people to him. May we be willing to do whatever it takes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the charge that you gave to Timothy. Fathers, we think of that here today. We're very grateful, Lord, instructed Timothy very clearly what love looked like. We know our world has its own definition of love. But Lord, you, you said love is that which comes from a pure heart, from a good conscience and a sincere faith. And Father, I just pray, give us the ability not to be crack pots, Lord. May we be able to rather be lower lights. May we be able to guide people safely to the harbor. 
Lord, all around us, there's people that are lost. All around us, Lord, there's people that are perishing, Father. You've planted a seed inside our hearts, Lord. Help it to grow and become fruitful for the sake of your kingdom, Lord. Father, we don't know how much time is left. Just like the Titanic, Lord, it may only be a short time. But in whatever time we have remaining, Father, may we be lower lights for people. May we guide them safely to the harbor of Jesus Christ. Give us courage, Lord. Give us faith. Lord, embolden us. Give us wisdom, Lord. May we redeem the time, recognizing that the days are evil, Lord. Lord, I pray for each person here. May each person here, may each person listening, Lord, be guided to the lifeboat of Jesus Christ. May they find safety there. May they find life in him. Thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name.